Good morning. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 4, which we'll get to momentarily. But first, uh, let's ask the Lord to bless our time together in His Word. Father, we thank You for revealing Yourself to us through the Scriptures. And Father, I pray that You would give us understanding, insight, conviction, and transformed lives as we engage with Your Word today. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. There is a doctrine that is underneath every other doctrine. There is a doctrine upon which every other doctrine is built, a doctrine that holds up every other doctrine. And if this foundational doctrine is neglected, compromised, or rejected, it is only a matter of time before the entire doctrinal edifice crumbles to the ground. And therefore, it is not surprising that the enemy of our souls makes a special effort to belittle, corrupt, and destroy this theological bedrock. For if the bedrock falls apart, then everything on it will fall to pieces. And I'm referring to the doctrine of Scripture. Perhaps you've heard of the great historical period known as the Protestant Reformation of the 16th century. One simple way by which many people remember the emphases of the Protestant Reformation is by referring to the, the five solas, or the five alones of the Reformation. Sola Scriptura, uh, Scripture alone, grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, and the glory of God alone. And the idea is that true salvation is a divine gift rooted in God's grace alone, and sinners must receive this gracious gift by faith alone, in Christ alone, and this wonderful salvation with all of its benefits and fruits abounds to the glory of God alone. The critical question, though, is how do we know that these things are so? Not by tradition, church councils, or papal decrees. We know what must be known about God's saving grace from Scripture, from Scripture alone. Therefore, you can see how Scripture serves a foundational role to all other doctrines because Scripture alone is the one and only definitive source of all, all doctrinal knowledge. Now, a full-orbed sermon on the doctrine of Scripture would include a discussion of its divine authorship and therefore of its divine authority, and therefore of its trustworthiness, it's utterly reliable, and also its inerrancy that it is accurate in everything that it says about every subject that it addresses. But as important as these things are, most evangelicals claim to believe these things about the Holy Bible. Whether they act consistently with this claim is another matter, but at least they profess to believe in the uniqueness and greatness of Scripture. However, there, there's another aspect to the doctrine of Scripture that is under constant assault. And from my vantage point, 
Many evangelical congregations have succumbed to severe compromise in this area. And I'm referring to the doctrine of the sufficiency of Scripture, which I will explain momentarily. Grasping this doctrine is absolutely key to individuals, families, and congregations flourishing as God intends, and neglecting this doctrine inevitably leads to spiritual drift, theological drift, and mission drift. Now, what do I mean by the sufficiency of Scripture? It, it, it may, this, this terminology may or may not be familiar to you. Before I give you my description of it, I just want you to, I want to give you the opportunity to hear what some other people have said about it. Um, the 1689 Baptist Confession of Faith declares in its very first sentence, the Holy Scriptures are the only sufficient, certain, and infallible standard of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. Pastor Dan Cole says, in the Bible, God has given us everything important about everything important. He has given us everything that matters about everything that matters. Pastor and theologian Sam Storms writes, the sufficiency of Scripture is the doctrine that the Bible contains every theological truth and every ethical norm that is required for living a Christ-exalting and God-glorifying life. Professor Matthew Barrett puts it this way, the sufficiency of Scripture means that all things necessary for salvation and for living the Christian life in obedience to God and for His glory are given to us in the Scriptures. And theologian Wayne Grudem gives this definition. Scripture contains everything we need God to tell us for salvation, for trusting Him perfectly, and for obeying Him perfectly. And I, 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 I say yes and amen to all of those formulations. Now, here's my, here's my description of the doctrine of the sufficiency of Scripture. The sufficiency of Scripture means that the totality of God's written Word is the only definitive and effective doctrinal means that God uses to rule and transform His people. Our grace-generated obedience to the totality of God's Word is the appointed pathway for our accomplishment of all that God intends to accomplish through us. Failure to render obedience to, and only to, the totality of God's Word takes us off course and has disastrous consequences. Now, there, there are two key words in this description that are carrying a lot of weight. The first key word is totality. Okay? We do not believe that portions of God's Word are definitive and effective means that God uses to rule and transform His people. We believe that the totality of God's Word, rightly, the whole of it, rightly understood in context as it unfolds from Genesis to Revelation, the totality of God's Word is the definitive and effective means that God uses to transform His people. The second key word is only. We do not believe that the totality of God's Word is but one means among several means that God uses to rule and transform His people. Instead, we believe that the totality of, of God's Word, all of it, and not any more of it, but only what God has given us in His Word, nothing in addition, the totality of God's Word is the means that God uses 
to rule and transform us, and therefore we have an obligation to render submission and obedience to all of Scripture. Um, Another important uh, word in my description of the sufficiency of Scripture is the word doctrinal, okay? I said that the totality of God's written word is the only definitive and effective doctrinal means that God uses to rule and transform his people. The word doctrinal is very important. God is sovereign over the entire universe. And he uses all kinds of means in order to work in our lives. For example, God uses suffering to sanctify our hearts and to draw us nearer to him. Uh, Question, though, is how do we know? How do we know that God uses suffering? How do we know that God uses trials? How do we know that God uses cancer to sanctify our hearts and draw us closer to him? Because scripture tells us, right? Romans 5, 3, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. So the, the sufficiency of Scripture means that God's written word is so gloriously enough for us in terms of acquiring the knowledge of God, acquiring the knowledge of God's will, acquiring the knowledge of God's plan of salvation, acquiring the knowledge of God's moral design for life, acquiring the knowledge of of God's grand purposes for the church and for the world, and not only for acquiring such knowledge, but for thoughtfully participating in it. Scripture is so gloriously enough that we must not dismiss any of it and we must not seek to improve upon it. The humble believer is glad to be hemmed in by all of God's words and only God's words. Okay, now I want to take some time to establish this doctrine from the Bible. As always, and I mean this, I, I, I do not ask you to take my word for it whenever I stand in this pulpit. I am not an originator of doctrinal ideas. I am a servant of the Word. God's Word stands over all of us, and my my job as a teacher is to point to it, to show you what it says. you got to see it. you got to see it for yourself. Now, one of the best books for, for which we can ponder the doctrine of Scripture sufficiency is the book of Deuteronomy. And I want, to get, I want to get three passages from Deuteronomy in front of you, beginning in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 1 through 8, which says this, And now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the rules that I am teaching you, and do them, that you may live and go in and take possession of the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, is giving you. You shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you. Your eyes have seen what the Lord did at Baal Peor, for the Lord your God destroyed from among you all the men who followed the Baal of Peor. But you who held fast to the Lord your God are all alive today. See, I have taught you statutes and rules as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples, who, when they hear all these statutes, will say, 
Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? Israel was called upon to keep the Lord's commandments, verse 2. The clear implication of verse 2 is that Israel was called to keep all of the Lord's commandments since they were prohibited from both adding to God's word and taking from God's word. In fact, not tampering with God's word is key to the obedience. Notice the purposeful word that in verse 2. You shall not add to the word that I command you nor take from it that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God. As soon as God's word is corrupted through humans mixing in their own additions or diluting the scriptures through subtraction or modification, the possibility of faithful obedience is immediately hindered. If we are going to obey all of God's commands and only God's commands, then God's commands must be preserved for us intact. Next, notice what God's commands are sufficient for. God's commands, if obeyed diligently and not corrupted through man-made modifications, are sufficient for human flourishing that you may live. They're sufficient for accomplishing God's missional purpose for his people, that you may live and go in and take possession of the land. And they are sufficient for impacting the nations. Keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and understanding in the sight of the peoples. Would you like to truly live and not die? Would you like to see God's purpose accomplished in our midst? Would you like to be savory salt in this decaying world? The answer is the same. Obey all of the Lord's commands and only the Lord's commands and all will be well. Deuteronomy 5 verse 32 says, You shall be careful therefore to do as the Lord your God has commanded you. You shall not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. You shall walk in all the way that the Lord your God has commanded you. Now go to Deuteronomy chapter 6. I'm going to do a quick stop there before we go to Deuteronomy 12. Deuteronomy 6, and I'm going to read verses 20 to 25. It says, When your son asks you in time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you, then you shall say to your son, We were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt. And the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand, and the Lord showed signs and wonders great and grievous against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. And he brought us out from there that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to give to our fathers. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as we are this day. And it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do all this commandment before the Lord our God as he has commanded us. This passage reiterates some of the principles from Deuteronomy chapter 4, but I just want to call attention to the fact that what we see here is that obedience, uh, we, we, are, we are called to a kind of obedience that flows from God's gracious salvation. The instruction is not to obey the Lord in order to get yourselves out of Egypt. The instruction is to obey the Lord because he has brought us out of Egypt. Okay? And, and 
that's, that's the, a principle that goes through the whole Bible. The Lord does not save us by our obedience, but he saves us for obedience that we might walk before him all the days of our life. And the, the logic of God's gracious salvation leading to obedience carries over into the New Testament. For example, in Titus chapter 2, verses 13 and 14, we are told that Jesus Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. We don't obey ourselves out of lawlessness. We have to be redeemed out of it, but being redeemed out of it by the blood of the Lamb and the gracious work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, we are called to live a life set apart, holy, obedient, and useful to the Lord. Now, go forward to Deuteronomy chapter 12. We're going to look at the end of Deuteronomy chapter 12, uh, verses 29 to 32. It says, When the Lord your God cuts off before you the nations whom you go in to dispossess, and you dispossess them and dwell in their land, take care that you be not ensnared to follow them, after they have been destroyed before you, and that you do not inquire about their gods, saying, How did these nations serve their gods? That I also may do the same. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. For every abominable thing that the Lord hates, they have done for their gods, for they even burn their sons and their daughters in the fire to their gods. Everything that I command you, you shall be careful to do. You shall not add to it, or take from it. The first half of verse 32 means be careful to observe everything that God commands. Everything that I command you, you shall be careful to do. The second half of verse 32 means be careful to observe only what God commands. You shall not add to it or take from it. In verses 29 to 31, we are warned to resist any temptation to incorporate pagan religious practices into our lives or into our worship. This warning is directly related to the sufficiency of God's Word. If God's Word is gloriously enough that we might know Him and that we might walk in His ways and that our lives and our worship would be pleasing in His sight, if God's Word is gloriously enough for that, then we have absolutely nothing constructive to learn from pagan religious practices. We have absolutely nothing to learn from Canaanite religion, Egyptian religion, Babylonian religion, Greco-Roman mystery religions, animistic religions, Islamic religion, or anything else. It may be beneficial to understand an unbeliever's religious system as part of your attempt to evangelize them and to call them to repentance, but that's neither here nor there as far as Deuteronomy 12 is concerned. The issue here is that to seek after and learn from pagan religious practices with a view towards observing them and incorporating them into your worship. That is forbidden. We must trust the Lord that His Word is sufficient for our well-being. And we must trust the Lord that flirting with pagan religious practices will only tend toward our own detriment. Therefore, when you learn about an upcoming event in our region, 
in which a psychic will connect audience members with the spirits around them. I'm not making this up, by the way. You should regard that as something that is off limits because there is no biblical warrant for engaging in such a practice. Scripture is sufficient. Now, moving to some other parts of the Bible, human beings, human beings do not have the authority to tamper with God's Word. God has the authority to add to His Word, which He, he did. We don't only have the first five books of Moses. We also have the writings and the prophets and the New Testament. God has the authority to add to His words that He's giving to us. Proverbs 30, verses 5 and 6 say... Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his words, lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. Embrace all of God's words and only God's words. We enjoy God's favor and protection when we bank on what he has revealed. Matthew 28, verses 18 to 20 is also a very important passage because it shows that our, uh, that our responsibility to observe all that the Lord commands carries over into the New Testament and applies to us as followers of Jesus. Jesus came and said to them in Matthew 28, verse 18, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. In another passage, Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments, John 14, verse 15. When you combine Matthew 28, 20 and John 14, 15, the disposition of a heart that loves Jesus will be to keep all of his commandments. Which, which, of course, includes the instruction that he gave through his authorized apostles um, after he ascended into heaven. It is fitting that the entire Bible concludes with a warning not to tamper with God's Word, specifically not to tamper with the words given in the book of Revelation. Revelation 22, verses 18 and 19 say... I warn everyone who... This is, this, is, this is Scripture's final warning. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. Revelation 22, verses 18 and 19. God's words from Deuteronomy and from Revelation and from every other part of Scripture are perfect, sure, right, pure, clean, true, more desirable than much fine gold, sweeter than honey, and the pathway to great reward. That's all from Psalm 19. Tampering with God's Word is the way to apostasy and ruin. Twisting God's Word is the way to shipwreck. As Peter tells us, that ignorant and unstable people twist Paul's letters and the other Scriptures to their own destruction. That's in 2 Peter 3, verse 16. By contrast, we can escape 
the moral corruption of this world by attending to the promises of God, which is the, the passage that uh, Tom read at the beginning of the service. But 2 Peter 1, 3, and 4 say, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. God's words, God's promises especially, are sufficient to make you an eager and fruitful participant in God's moral excellence. We must also remember Paul's well-known words from 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Since all Scripture is breathed out by God, we need all of it and should desire all of it. The totality of God's Word is sufficient to make the man of God complete, to furnish the man of God with everything that he needs to do the works that God requires of him. The totality of Scripture is profitable and sufficient for instructing us in sound doctrine, convicting us of what is right and wrong, restoring us after we have gone astray, and bring, bring us to maturity in practical, righteous living. Scripture is sufficient for those things. All of God's words and only God's words are the definitive and effective doctrinal means that God uses to rule and transform His people. Therefore, we must uniquely treasure and diligently follow all that God has revealed to us in the Bible. Now, the doctrine of the sufficiency of Scripture is a simple and straightforward doctrine. And not only that, it is a very freeing doctrine. It is our privilege to know God's revealed will for our lives. It is our privilege to know with confidence God's unchanging character, His benevolent care, His saving mercies. It is our privilege to know with confidence God's moral design for the world. It is our privilege to know the message of the gospel and the fruit that it bears. In all this, it is our privilege to know what the boundaries are to the end that we flourish within the framework of God's good and wise boundaries and that we not perish in violation of those boundaries. And yet, for all that, we are very foolish creatures who often seem to go out of our way to undermine God's authoritative and complete script for our lives. Unlike Noah, who did all that God commanded him, Genesis 6.22, Human beings often pursue numerous schemes to refuse obedience. Even as the Bible concludes with a warning not to tamper with God's Word, where did humanity's problems begin? In Genesis 3, they began with tampering with God's Word. Those very first word off the lips of the sneaky serpent, did God actually say... That reveals his entire strategy, which is to undermine God's Word, cast doubt on God's Word, reconfigure God's Word, twist God's Word, distort God's Word, and finally assault God's Word. 
since God's design is to rule and transform his people through his word, Satan's chief tactic is to assault that word and deceive people into believing his words. Those who insist on disobeying the words of the Lord end up obeying the words of the devil. You, listen, like it or not, you will be mastered by words. The only question is, which master's words you will be ruled by? Okay, in 1 Samuel 16, the Lord instructed King Saul to destroy all of the Amalekites and all of their animals. What did King Saul do? He destroyed most of the Amalekites and some of their animals. You don't need a degree, an advanced degree, to know that some is not all. And most is not all. God's word was sufficient to establish King Saul in a long kingship under the blessing of God, and he forfeited that possibility by tampering with God's word. The, the, the prophet Samuel reproved Saul and said, because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. In Jeremiah 23, the Lord rails against the false prophets. False prophets downplayed the seriousness of sin and assured sinful people that it would be well with them. These false prophets spoke visions of their own minds, not from the mouth of the Lord, Jeremiah 23, 16. These false prophets claimed to have dreams, Jeremiah 23, 25, and yet they only prophesied the deceit of their own heart, Jeremiah 23, 26. These false prophets prophesied lying dreams, filled the people with vain hopes, and led Israel astray by their lies and by their recklessness. People then and people now who love to have their ears tickled and their sins coddled are all too willing to accept the sweet gumdrops of vision-claiming and dream-claiming prophets who are only proclaiming the lies that fill their own hearts. The Pharisees illustrate the problem of adding to God's Word. They had an extensive body of oral traditions, of rules and regulations, that they treated as if they were divine commandments. They added to Scripture and they paid more addition I'm sorry, they paid more attention to their additions than they did to God's actual commandments. They cared more about adhering to their man-made rules than they did about honoring their father and mother and showing mercy to other human beings. And Jesus rebuked them for their disobedience. Jesus said, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, this people honors me with their lips but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment, the commandment of God, in order to establish your tradition. That's from Mark chapter 7, verses 6 to 9. Beware the temptation to place man's ideas or your ideas over God's ideas. Beware the temptation to turn to the right or turn to the left instead of staying straight on the path that Jesus has set before us. I want to make two applications, okay? One is, one is very simple and straightforward that we need encouragement to do. And the second one, the second uh, 
application is more involved and it's designed to equip your early detection spiritual radar system, okay, in terms of discernment. So here, here, here's the first application. Honor Scripture's exceeding enoughness by giving yourself wholeheartedly to it. Last night, Keziah was, was asking me, she was in my office, home office looking around, she was like, how many Bibles do you have? Oh, I got a lot. Uh, and then I started to think, through this, I, got to, I, got, like, I got to nine really quickly. Um, our access to physical and digital copies of the Bible is unparalleled in human history. Don't squander it. Don't prefer self-help books and silly YouTube channels. Don't settle for laziness. Take hold of the book and meditate on it and put it into practice. If you want to be like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither, Psalm 1-3, then delight in the Lord's instruction and set your mind upon it day and night, Psalm 1, verse 2. It's simple, simple application. The problem is, is that sometimes we're just stubborn or busy, distracted. You encourage each other to get into the Bible. The second application is, uh, is to equip your early detection spiritual radar system, Okay? Um, as I'm going through here, I'm not, I'm not, the, the main purpose of this is not to critique ideas out there, though I'm, I'm doing that, but, but the main purpose is to, to equip you so that your antennas are up, so that you don't get led down deceitful paths, okay? Um, the doctrine of the sufficiency of Scripture has been under significant attack ever since Genesis 3, and the attack continues in our own day. It's bad enough, it's bad enough that the world doesn't like it, but, uh, but what's really problematic is that so many people from within the church undermine the doctrine of Scripture's sufficiency. For example, back in 2018, Andy Stanley, a pastor down in Atlanta who's the son of the late Charles Stanley, made the following statement in, in one of his sermons, and I'm not just like pulling this, like, I got this quote from somebody else, and I'm sharing it with you. I listened to the sermon, okay? Um, and he made this quote, uh, church leaders think the apostles, okay? Uh, that's who he's talking about. Church leaders unhitched the church from the worldview, value system, and regulations of the Jewish scriptures. And a Andy Stanley is excited about what he perceives to be the detachment of Christianity from the Old Testament. Now, there are numerous problems with Andy Stanley's statement, and evaluating the statement is complicated by the fact that he seems to have a negative and distorted view of what the Old Testament teaches. But for my purposes in this sermon, I simply want to point out that logic, the logic of, uh, of Stanley's statement, it would lead to gutting 70% of the Bible and taking away 70% of the Word of God. Yes, certain regulations have been set aside, 
The New Testament talks about that. But the worldview and value system of the Old Testament, rightly understood, are the worldview and value system of the entire Bible, which is why as you're reading through the New Testament, the, the biblical writers time and time again are building upon the revelation in the Old Testament as they give application and encouragement to the church. So have your, have your, have your radar screen up. Uh, there, here, now here are some other deceitful tactics that are used to undermine the sufficiency of God's Word. If someone identifies a particular instruction of God's Word as secondary a secondary issue, and on that basis concludes that we can take it or leave it, he is taking away the proper force of that instruction. Whether or not it's even appropriate to identify one of the Lord's commandments as secondary, even if it is, it's the Lord's commandment. Walk in obedience to it. If someone says, no creed but Christ, Be careful, because they are refusing to commit themselves to confessional agreement with what the Bible teaches about Jesus. It might sound pious to say, Christ alone is my theology, and I have no need for doctrinal statements or creedal affirmations. But which Christ? Who is this Christ? that you believe in? And what did he accomplish? What did he do? Why is it important? What claim does he make up on our lives? And it's, the, the only way to answer those questions is by getting a lot of Bible, understanding a lot of Bible, so that, we under, so that we know who Jesus is. If somebody says, doctrine divides, love unites, be careful. They don't want to deal with They may not want to deal with the careful contours and rough edges of what Scripture teaches. They want to just say that it 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 all boils down to love. Love God and love people. Now, those are the two greatest commandments. Absolutely. But it is a tortuous reasoning process to detach the two greatest commandments from from, from all the instruction in which they are embedded do you really think that you, you are sufficient to take the two greatest commandments out of their biblical context and now you're going to successfully put them into practice? The fact of the matter is, is that Jesus said that all the law and the prophets hang on the two greatest commandments, which means there's an essential unity between those two greatest commandments and all of God's commandments. In fact, loving God and obeying His commandments is essential to loving people, 1 John 5, 2 tells us. I like what R.C. Sproul said. Of course doctrine divides, but it also unites. It unites the ones who love God's truth and are willing to worship Him according to that truth. And at the end of the day, that's the only kind of unity that matters. If someone says... Brace yourselves now. If someone says people are more important than doctrine or relationships with other people are more important than doctrine or unity with other professing Christians is more important than doctrine, then you should get out of Dodge fast. Keep in mind that when I say doctrine, 
I'm not talking about man-made doctrine. And I'm not talking about elaborate doctrinal minutiae, and I'm not talking about a 1,200-page systematic theology volume on some bookshelf. I'm not talking about that. Okay, when I say doctrine, I simply mean what Scripture teaches. There are way too many people in our churches without a backbone. And when the pressure ramps up and they have to choose between remaining faithful to what Scripture teaches or supporting a loved one in his or her sin, they abandon Scripture in preference for their friend. We can legitimately wrestle with how to demonstrate genuine love to someone who is stuck in a sinful lifestyle, but, but, the, but the principle, okay, the principle of esteeming the worth and words of God over the worth and words of people should not be a difficult principle for genuine Christians to embrace. Okay? We fear God more than we fear men, which means we regard the words of God and the desires of God more than the words and desires of men. If I'm in a situation where I have to choose between fidelity to God's word and loyalty to you, or fidelity to God's word and loyalty to my son or daughter, or fidelity to God's word or loyalty to a long-standing friend, I am bound as a disciple of Jesus Christ to remain faithful to the word of God, whatever the consequences may be. After that passage in Deuteronomy chapter 12 tells us to not adopt pagan religious practices, and tells us not to tamper with God's word, but to carefully obey all of it, the next chapter immediately tells us, this is Deuteronomy chapter 13, that if a false prophet arises and encourages us to go after other gods, or if a family member or dear friend encourages us to go and serve other gods, or if a neighboring city has been drawn away to serve other gods, then in each case we are instructed to honor the Lord by opposing that false prophet or family member or dear friend or neighboring city and to put them under the Lord's discipline. God's word is more important than people, more important than relationships, and more important than superficial unity. Only when we put God's word first can we love people well. Only when we put God's word first can we build healthy relationships, and only when we put God's word first can we cultivate the right kind of unity that is pleasing to the Lord? Now, all of these are common deceits that are thrown at us in order to take away from the fullness and force of the Scriptures. But there are also common deceits thrown at us in order to get us to add to the Scriptures. For starters, beware of the overly personalized interpretation trap. What does this passage mean to you? That's the wrong question. It's the wrong question. What does this passage mean? Period. Okay? I, th I, think, I think somebody said this statement that I'm about to make. Um, the passage means what it meant before you were born. And it will mean the same thing long after you're dead. Find out what it means. Then talk about how that applies to you and your circumstances. Also beware of the God told me trap. Apparently there are a lot of Christian people who somehow get around to thinking that God told me this or God told me that. Why are you putting words in God's mouth? 
thus says the Lord, or God said, or Jesus said, or the Holy Spirit said, are biblical ways of describing scriptural revelation. Don't add to the number of divinely breathed out words by casually applying these terms to your own impressions. Now, I, I do believe that the Holy Spirit, uh, that, that He impresses things upon us, that He illuminate, illuminates our understanding in the light of the Scriptures, that He impels us to certain actions, but out of reverence for the Scriptures, let's not claim too much for our own experiences, which in any case are susceptible to error. The Holy Spirit's presence in our lives will be demonstrated by wise living and good fruit, not by claiming that He has given, given us specific words from the mouth of the Lord. Finally, if someone comes along and says, and by the way, I, these statements here, I'm not, I'm not uh, thinking these up on my, myself. These are statements I've actually heard uh, people make. Um, and these are, these, are, these, are, these are tricky ones, so pay attention, because they're technically... These two statements are technically right, but they're often spoken in service to a bad agenda, okay? Statement number one, God is free to act in ways that are contrary to our understanding of His Word. That's the, that's the first statement. The second statement is, we worship the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, not the Father, the Son, and the Holy Bible. When you hear statements like that, you should really fasten your seatbelt and make sure that you don't go off to the right or to the left. See, both of these statements are technically true and could be made by someone who believes in the sufficiency of Scripture. But, for, for example, if our understanding of the Word is faulty, then of course, of course, God is, is free and likely will act in ways that are contrary to our faulty understanding of His Word. Okay? And yes, the Holy Spirit, not the Holy Bible, is the third member of the Trinity. However, Statements like this are often put forward as a way of detaching Christians from scriptural authority. One of the things that's clear throughout the whole Bible, including the passages that we've read today, is that God wants us to be tethered to His Word, wants us to be boundaried by His Word, wants us to be governed by His Word. And people who want, us, who want to detach us from the authority and sufficiency of the Scriptures, say things like this as an on-ramp to their dreams and visions and prophecies that, that lack biblical support. For example, uh, I, 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 read, I read a book. I read a book, uh, uh, a, a Christian book, okay, in which uh, this lady claims that God has told her to lead other people into personal visits to heaven. And the kind of statements that people will throw out to defend her course of action is, don't put God in a box. God's doing a new thing. Pious-sounding statements that have a measure of truth to them, but but the, but, the, but the statements are being made in service to get people to do things for which there is no biblical warrant. And so beware of these kinds of statements that are leading people astray. I'm going I'm to conclude with this. When the Lord appointed Joshua as the general who would lead the people of the children of Israel into the promised land, 
the Lord made it clear that his word was sufficient to ensure Joshua's success. Joshua 1, verses 6 to 8. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Joshua had a specific task of course, but the general principle holds constant throughout the Scriptures. God's Word is exceedingly enough to ensure whatever measure of fruitfulness God intends to accomplish through us. The need of the hour is for men and women, husbands and wives, fathers and mothers, children, preachers and elders, deacons and ministry leaders, missionaries and church planters, teachers and counselors, to take their stand upon the Lord's Word and to be convinced in their heart that the divine Word is abundantly able to accomplish all that God wants to accomplish. And therefore, their confidence is in the Scriptures and not in man's clever ideas. And that's the vision of a church that is resting in the sufficiency of the Scriptures. Let's pray. Father, the pitfalls are many and our own hearts are capable of being deceived and we're capable of getting off track. So, Father, I pray that you would protect us by your word and by your spirit. I pray that you would lead us in paths of righteousness. I pray that that you would um, open up our eyes to understand the riches of your word that, uh, that we would speak forth your truth to one another. We would encourage each other and admonish each other and strengthen each other day by day. And I pray that we would experience the fruitfulness that comes from planting ourselves in the Scriptures. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.